In this series of podcasts, we discuss the transforming work of God, who is uncreated being, upon our souls as limited, created being. We discover how His Word reveals the truth of the union of His Spirit with our Spirit through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. This transformation of our lives is not just about a change from bad to good. It's about a shift from natural to spiritual, from old creation to new creation. Well, hi, Paul. How are you? Yeah, good to see you, Scott. Great, because we're under commandment number two, and commandment two is a big one, actually. Uh, I'll just read it before we start. It comes from Exodus 20, verse 4. You shall not make for yourselves any carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now, Paul, so there's some interesting language in, in this particular commandment. It seems very comprehensive, wouldn't you say? It is. It, it covers just about everything that humanity gets eyes on to ascribe some kind of power to, to make it a God of some kind. Yeah, and people do that today, don't they, all the time, with almost anything. Yes, it is part of the human condition to want to know how things started, where did I come from, this idea of making something as a reference point to that thing that's beyond us in our limited capacity and our limited time span on this planet as well. So because the the first commandment is about God declaring that he's the one God, it leads to this tendency for man to have to cope with that and say, do I want to accept that? Because a whole lot of humanity does not really want to believe that, that there is a God that is in charge of everything. People tend to want to be independent. But this commandment tells us that God says, I'm the creator, I am the I am, the source of being and identity for every person and purpose and meaning. That's what the first commandment said, I am that God. And then this commandment says, so don't make any other God. If a person doesn't fully grasp that and accept that and even embrace it, that this God says that he is the source of every good thing for my life that I need. If a person doesn't just say, yes, of course, I'll accept that, they will have to find some other source of who they are, their identity, their being, and purpose. God, in everything he does, puts himself first. I mean, God says, in the beginning, God, and then he created. Speaks about Jesus as being the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Now, our story, as far as our life on this planet, is part of that story. It's part of his story. We don't make up our own story or write our own book. We try to. It's actually normal and natural for somebody to start saying, this is me. This is where I came from. And depending on how they imagine that, they will then act that out and live it. But he says to us, don't look to any other source for all of that reality. I am the reality, you're part of my reality. Don't look to the stars in the heaven and say, well, that's guiding my life, or the birds of the air, 
the great eagle is what I will look to. And there are certain kind of primitive cultures that look to these things. Uh, well, even today, certain modern cultures that look to these things as a source of reality for them. Save the whales, the trees, the animals. Now, it's not that it isn't good to respect that creation, but to make it a sacred cow or the proverbial sacred cow and say, this has to be reverenced as something greater than me. It is actually part of where I came from. And so man is, mankind is always looking to find this kind of thing. And so they'll look to see what is the thing that I get drawn to. But if we miss the significance of this uncreated being called God and are unable to respond to that truth because, well, perhaps we've never heard it, we're ignorant of it, or perhaps we're just so defiant or independent or even indifferent, then we do have to look for some created being rather than accept the fact that there is an uncreated being. Scientifically, that's a difficult thing to do. But I must say, as far as science is concerned, there is a philosophical law in the science of philosophy of what's called contingency. In other words, here is a thing. Oh, good. Where did that thing come from? Well, I'm not sure. Well, let's find out because everything is contingent upon something else. That is a reality. When you get to God, you find that he is not contingent upon any other being. Now, that is Christianity. And as far as I'm concerned, in talking about this and doing this podcast, that is the reality, that is the truth about God. He is an uncreated being. Mm. Nothing came before him and everything that comes is created and is contingent upon him. That is the axiom the truth that tells us where we came from and where we're going to. Well, let me pick up on the sacred cow comment you made, because if you remember Moses went up the mountain, uh, received the Ten Commandments, came back down, and the Israelites had already built a type of sacred cow. In fact, it was a golden calf, wasn't it? Yes. But why, why did they do that? Just humanly speaking, to say emotionally, why did they do that? They didn't plan to do that. They got impatient. Moses had gone up to the mountain and he said he's going to talk to God. And he was gone for six weeks. Six weeks is a long time. Moses has gone for six weeks. So they think, well, that means God's gone too. Now, we get impatient. We tend to do that. People who believe in God can say nothing's happening. They get impatient and say, where's God gone? I've got to make something happen. That's what I mean. That was the emotional kind of reaction that these people from Egypt got into. This is interesting because they'd just been brought through the Red Sea yep. and brought out of Egypt. They'd seen 10 different plagues and miracles happen yeah. to bring them out of Egypt. They led them through the wilderness to the point where Moses went up the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments, and after everything they'd already seen and experienced, they still built the golden calf. Still again, I have to say it, that is normal. 
Yeah. That's what we're like. You see, miracles don't transform a person. In fact, miracles don't make you believe. Do you know what miracles do? They make you want more miracles. Because mm. you say, this is great, give me more, give me more. So the miracles are there and they are a reality of God as a supernatural being and as being able to create something out of nothing. But a person very quickly decides that if it's not happening enough for them, then it's not real. I want to see it again. I don't see people, I, I, I do see people wanting to see miracles, but I don't see miracles transforming their life. I see an absolute trust in that God as a person who can come in and indwell us by his Holy Spirit that actually transforms our life and our character by faith. Mm. So that's where we're going in this. And that's why these people in their impatience wanted some action. They couldn't just trust, as you say, that they'd already seen all of that. So people choose to make something for themselves that becomes a reference point for what life is about, where we came from, where we're supposed to be going, what's your helpline when you're in trouble. They just wanted to know, what do we do now? Let's do something. So Aaron, that was Moses' brother, he was put under pressure by the people from Israel, the, the Israelites who'd come out of Egypt, they put pressure on him to create for them some kind of a reference point that they could see something tangible to say, where's God, Aaron? Your brother's up there, he's gone, God's gone, do something. So he said, take your earrings off, all your gold earrings, throw them in a fire. He made made the fire, melted down the gold, said, let's carve out a wooden calf and plate it with gold. That's what it was. And they did that. And so they had a golden calf. But that was purely and simply a confused concept of what Israel thought was God. The reason they thought that was because that was the God in Egypt. Egypt worshipped, that was their sacred cow. They worship the golden calf. So these people in Israel had to relate to something tangible. They made it for themselves and their concept was shaped by their past experience. We've done this before. We know how it works. We want it back. And when they fashioned that sacred cow, which was the golden calf, they, they said, this is the God that brought us out of Egypt. They did want to believe, they wanted another miracle, but they wanted to see and be able to com have command over how to make that thing materialise for them. That's the basis of idolatry. Mm. It was something they knew, so they went back to it. Um, it wasn't just say, let's make some kind of a, an image. It was because they had a concept in their minds, an imagination, they had to find some form for it and they picked something material that they knew. But it doesn't always, as far as people are concerned, have to be a statue. It can still remain as just something I know or I've had experience on. It can be some kind of ideology. And we put trust in something that, that produces the goods for us. Well, how do people get to put their trust in the images? It depends on how well the concept is sold to somebody from the get-go. 
If a person grows up believing in the ideology of their parents, which is quite normal, they'll accept what they're told by those people that they believe know better than they do. So they trust in them. So that was your question. How do people put their trust in images? They get taught to trust them because they trust the people that are telling them this is what it's all about. There's a payoff in that because when you trust somebody that tells you this is how everything works and this is how you behave, then you start to do what you're supposed to do. Then you start to feel you belong because everybody says you're going well and you get rewarded on your performance and your loyalty to that thing that you've been told is the reality of how things are. This is the reality of life. This is what you can trust in. That becomes a form really of, in fact, it's like tribalism. You now have an identity that has been taught to you. You've received it. You accept it. And you've now joined this tribe you didn't go around looking for it. You were brought up in it. And so you accept that that's it. And you start to realise that there are other tribes. And then you say, my tribe's better than your tribe. And they, that's where you get isms from, tribalism. And there are so many of these gods that are made become isms and they compete with one another in the marketplace. Then a person grows up and they become independent in their thinking. And mum and dad had it for them as they grew up, but then they get to the age where they think, well, hang on, I want to just investigate some of these other things that people are into. And people get to change tribes along the way, depending upon who sells them the best image for them to get the payoff that they're now looking for. There's always another God to create another image and it doesn't have to be a golden calf it doesn't have to be a form of materialistically it can be an ideology but it's there and so what a person does is they get this into their mind it's something they're drawn to they embrace it and they project that image that they've got onto the wall of their soul and the bible says we are body soul and spirit the question was, how do we get to trust in images? Well, we take it into ourselves and we embrace that thing and the, the body, soul and spirit component of every human being then allows the idea, the thought, to be taken on by the intellect and accepted by the mind. The mind says, I accept that. That's a, that's a good idea. Then the emotions start to bind themselves to the idea with things like hopes and desires and expectations and energy. And then people start making choices with their will because the soul has the intellect, the emotions and the will. That's how we express what's on the inside of us. So if somebody's embraced something that to them is their God, if you like, that's their source of identity and so on, so they will make choices with their will, even sacrificially, to get the payoff they're looking for. So they're trusting it. So they might, what might they get? What are their payoffs? Well, they get acceptance. Everybody accepts me. I'm believing exactly the same as them. They get attention. 
They might get success. They get fame. They can even get influence and power because they've joined the tribe that offers that. And that's what they're looking for. That's how identity politics gets fueled. And tribal warfare occurs because people want to get the societal advantage, if you like, for their tribe. Mm. Because you're in, you're in a tribal warfare now, you're competing. And this is idolatry. This is all these different gods that have become the source of your identity, your purpose, your meaning. And so people say, well, let's get ours up front. We want attention for our particular thing. That's, that's our identity. So it becomes political. And you can say, well, we want the moral high ground. That's what we want. And we're going to make everybody feel, look how virtuous they are. And we're going to shame anybody that doesn't actually aspire to what we believe is the greatest value. And they feel so cosy and comfortable and judgmental in that because they've got the right God. It gets, gets to be like a religion. But then some people say, well, it's not actually moral high ground. I want entitlement privilege. I'm going to make sure that I qualify for becoming entitled to a lot of things. I can make myself a victim of all the nasty people. Or I can actually get to know the right kind of people and get certain privileges. I can be part of the in crowd. Now, all of these things are payoffs for people by joining the right group. I'm going to be a justice warrior. And they may be very sincere or a social activist for some cause that they enshrine. Now, these things don't have to be wrong things, but the problem is they become reverenced as something that is beyond them. It, it transcends just being a human being that lives a life with a, a certain morality which is based in what you might call archetypal values of honesty and truth, everything that's in the Ten Commandments, and there's a new kind of morality. So you see this happening around about you. It is everywhere, Scott. Mm. And these things become enshrined. That becomes a, a state of consciousness, and that becomes a person's reality, and that is the, the societal backdrop of our global culture today. Mm. And these things that you're talking about gather momentum even faster these days, don't they, with the global communication and people can get ideas out there that other people can latch on to and, and follow. Yeah. yeah, they do. They become advertised. That becomes the product that's out there. And there are a lot of people waiting to look for some kind of reality. Mm. You know, what have you got for sale? But do these images um, have an inherent power in themselves? They do. Because people use these images as a substitute for a relationship with God, then they ascribe power to them. They become powerful, these things, because of all the passion and effort that goes into creating that image internally. And so if a person has gone to all the trouble to internalise this thing and make it a, an image with passion and effort, then they will strive to get that to materialise and become a reality for them. And they will say, this is working. Yeah, it seems to have power, but it only has the power that is put into it by that person. Now, I want to go beyond person now because it's not just the individual who feels empowered. What they're doing is they are tapping into what's called a collective power. They are part of a collective consciousness that this is 
the meaning of reality. I've got to say they're powerful. What they do and the effort they put in is given back to them with the same kind of passion and effort by the group and they think this has got to be working. And of course, they lose sight of the fact there's a whole lot of other people, like 90% of the rest of the population that think, I don't know what you're talking about. Doesn't matter. The thing is, it's not God. Again, the mindset and the reality is it's seen in the Bible as to what we do when we make an image. Now, this here's a scripture in Psalm 115, and it's talking about material images. But I want you to think about what I've just said about ideological images and the collective consciousness and the effort and the passion and the payoffs and all of that. Here's the scripture in Psalm 115. It says, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they don't speak. They have eyes, but they don't see. They have ears, but they don't hear. They have noses, but they don't smell. They have hands, but they don't feel. They have feet, but they don't walk. They have a throat, but no voice. Then the clincher is this. Those who make them become like them. And so do all who trust in them. So, yeah, they trust in them and they become like them. The theological and philosophical reality in everything that I believe I've been saying is that what you reverence and worship, you become like, because that's the image that is defining you. And that's why God says, me first. So even though this is talking about material images, the ideologies and conceptual images work the same way. So people become absolutely committed and loyal to this God, because you have to. You've got to conform. This is something to be reverenced. So you pay homage to it and you commit to it, you're loyal to it. But a loyal, committed relationship with an ideal or an image is not the same as a relationship with a person. They're two different things because the image can only give you back what you've put in. But a person gives you back the reality of who they are and, the, and you begin to form bonds that have got truth and reality and assessment and markers and all kinds of um, language along the way that allows a unity of mind and heart and spirit to come from what I believe God wants us to be, and that is an individual. We're not to be defined as a group. We are an individual. Now, we can join ourselves relationally to God and he allows us to then, and this is where we talk about images, because we are created in his image, we become more like him. And because there are, and God wants it to be, that his humanity, his creation, being created like him, as far as his idea for them is to relate to him as a person, to start to become like him, which is what you do with your God, and to relate to one another as people in his family of persons and relate to one another that way. The idolatry is a substitute for a relation with the person of God. What we're talking about here is within the context of the Ten Commandments. And remember when we started doing the Ten Commandments, we said the commandments are, are a function of relationships, that everything, all true growth of character, especially concerning our, our godly values and our wisdom, 
but everything comes through the interaction in our lives of personal relationships, starting with our relationship with God. So that's why God said, I'm the Lord your God, don't make another image because you're going to go around in these circles and I want to bring you back. People came up to Jesus and they said, what was, what's the greatest commandment? You know, let's take the Ten Commandments. And so they wanted to pin him down. What's the greatest? And Jesus said, love the Lord your God with your whole heart and mind and soul and your neighbour as yourself. Relationship, relationship, relationship. So God's designed life to be that way. His whole meaning for us is contained in the fact that he's a person, not just a concept or an ideal. People involved in an ideological image, I'm talking about people that have got a, a God now, and it's an ideology, it's an ism, it's a political identity, whatever, the group. Now, of necessity, they are going to be relating to other people. So I really have to say that. It's not like they're robots. Yeah, they're real people, warm, compassionate, sincere people. I don't want to knock that. I want to lift up above their quest for another God, the fact that there already is a God that will fulfill everything in their life. But they're, they're, they can be great people, and I believe they are. And I admire their passion and their allegiance to some very lofty ideals. The point is that's not there to give them an identity. But the problem with their relating to one another in a collective is the basis of their acceptance is not necessarily because of who that other person is in themselves as a one-on-one -on -one relationship. It's not necessarily I'm relating to you because I'm here because of you. No, you and I are here because of it. We're here because of the ideal, the concept. And let's get that straight. And that becomes the basis of your acceptance. And now we all have to conform to and come under the banner of the ideology that we've got in common. And you're not allowed to be unorthodox. That's not allowed. You get banned. You don't belong anymore. You're out of the group. This is why people stick to the group and look so committed and loyal. But it doesn't mean that the ideal is wonderful and perfect at all. It's just there and people are stuck to it. Um, and that's why Jesus found himself in trouble. He was in trouble with the scribes and the Pharisees and the elders of Judaism because he was unorthodox as a Jew. They just didn't like the way he did Judaism. But in fact, he was the most orthodox Jew of all. And now we get right back to the fact, why? Well, because he had a relationship to his father as God and he was the son of God. So he, had a, he was relating to his father as he should have and as they should have. He was doing it, they weren't. They'd made their own religion like an ideology. Mm. It was an ism, a Judaism. Mm. Based around traditions and exactly. man-made rules. Exactly. And, and we see a lot of uh, religions today have their own idols. They'll grab a piece of wood and carve it up and create an idol out of it, and they'll use the other part as firewood, perhaps. And even Christians today have objects and things that they've created that they ascribe some value to and really define it as an idol. 
don't they? So yeah, there are some that, that, that do. Uh, yes, I've seen that. That happens right across all I, I've been to people. countries where I see that in Christian yeah. people, yeah. yeah. They have well, their shrines and everything for it too. Yeah. So, I mean, do these uh, carved or shaped images or, or objects that are defined by people as idols, do they have supernatural power? The fringe of religion and, and primitive religion, if you go to places where there, there's a lot of spiritual stuff going on and people, as you say, even in Christianity, on fringes, ascribe power to objects like stones or carvings. And that is called animism. Now, I'm not saying that they're always ascribing good, godly love and wisdom to objects. They can ascribe evil power to them, right? And they can say, these things are cursed, but they're just an object. They don't have power, but power is given to them. And the strange thing about it is they become powerful. Mm. And they do have power, but similar to what I was talking about, about the idols that people make, it is what you put into it that you get back out of it. I was once asked to cast the spirit out of a stone. Really? By a Christian, a nice person. Did you do it? They said, this stone has been cursed, Pastor, we'd like you to come and, and release it from the curse. Will you cast the spirit out? And I'm like... I kind of rubbed my chin and I said, look, instead of casting the spirit out, why don't we cast the stone out, chuck it out in the river and forget about it because it doesn't have any power. Look, people, you would remember, you've, you've spoken to people that have ascribed power to pyramids, you know, the mm. shape of a pyramid. And they actually do somehow find some sort of power and, and crystals and things like that. But they would only have the power that a person's imagination gives them. And that can be powerful. It's a strong psychological power of superstition and auto-suggestion. And people can basically have the bone pointed at them. You know, you've heard of that. Mm. And they'll just wither away and die. But that bone doesn't have power. It is what's coming from the collective group, what is believed as to what is attributed to that thing and that person's entire soul and being and embraces that as a power. And psychologically, we can do that to ourselves. Mm. We're fearfully and wonderfully made, aren't we? Mm. But there's mm. dangers in all of that area. And that's why Paul, when he was writing to the Corinthians, in fact, it's an interesting scripture in 1 Corinthians 8, and there were Christians who were eating meat that had been offered to idols. Now, they were scared stiff of this. They thought, whoops, that meat now is cursed and it's got power and it can pollute us. They were frantic, fearful, judging certain other Christians that were eating the meat that had been offered to idols and not seeming to be worried about it. So Paul wrote to them, because there was a lot of contention in the church about it. And he says, um, therefore, brothers and sisters, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. Mm. And then he says, and that there is no God but one. Now, there it is. He's wrapped it up. Mm. He says, for although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, and indeed there are many gods, and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, 
from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. And then he finishes it up beautifully with an admonition. In a sense, he just says, however, not all men possess this knowledge. In other words, because of ignorance of what the reality is, going right back to the beginning, God is the beginning and the end. He's the reality. He is the story. We're part of his story. We make up our own story. It is an illusion of our imagination. I'm not saying it may not be fascinating and fine, but God has a story. We're part of that. And as soon as we find that, as quickly as we can find that, the better we are off. Mm. So, Paul, we've talked a lot about, you know, carved images and created images. What about self-image making? Well, that's big because we need to have an image of ourselves. Who, which one of us doesn't say, who am I? Where do I come from? What am I doing here? Why am I here? Where am I going? We do have a working model self-image. Every one of us individually we grow into a working model of what we would say, what I would call a self-image. And that is an outcome of what is reflected back to us by others throughout our life. You know, a three-year-old doesn't sit there and do self-analysis and work out, yes, I'm this type of personality, I'm an A-plus personality, I'm an alpha male, or <laughs> I'm a very a gracious female, and yes, I think I've got a tag on exactly who I am, that's me. People don't do that and people can't do that. Others reflect back to us throughout our life who we are. And that's always got a mixture of either helpful and loving feedback or harmful and negative feedback. You don't get the perfect mix when you have the people that are the closest to you that you are dependent upon feeding back to you who you are. I mean, you know, you. If you've read Piaget, the, the child psychologist, he's done beautiful work on what happens to a child in the first two years, first three years, the first seven years, and you see a self-image being formed. And it's quite amazing science, really. But the working model of a self-image is incomplete and it's distorted. It doesn't matter however it is perceived. It's, it's not complete because it's been reflected back to you from incomplete people. And that's, that's not that they are bad people. They're just not complete themselves. The perception is flawed. It's always kind of looking in a mirror at itself and not quite sure what it's seeing. And it's mostly disappointing. It's funny when you ask children. It wasn't me. It was another teacher that I know who was tremendous with kids. Paulie said, you ask uh, a little girl between the age of, say, four to eight, Oh, are you pretty? And they'll say, yes, I'm pretty. Then you ask a girl between the age of eight and 14, are you pretty? Oh, no, God, look at this. And, I, and all of a sudden, their, their mirror that they're looking in is not shining back what they want. There's this sense of uh, the self-image and it's self-consciousness. Mm. And the self-consciousness gives us a negative reflection in our own self conscious mirror. It's mostly disappointing. I'm just saying that maybe that's being a bit too broad, but everybody that I've met is a little bit disappointed in the self-image that they've got. They'd rather it was a bit better because they've become emotionally bonded often to the wounds 
of the negative feedback they've had in their life. Mm. I mean, that's us, folks. And we feed it with self-talk as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we build it up. Mm. We, you know, we, we write the, the, the copy for this story of us. I'm a bigger victim than you are. That's my story. You beat this. You haven't been treated like that. And you think, what's the competition for here? Mm. We think, well, how do we get this image right? Now, one thing you can't do as an adult, self-analysis doesn't work. It is totally unreliable. You can't just sit down and imagine what sort of a person you are and assess yourself correctly in every aspect of your temperament, your strengths, your weaknesses, uh, whether you're attractive or you have non-attractive attributes, because everybody's got attractive and non-attractive attributes. But if you're going to be the judge as to what they are, you could be terribly wrong. You could turn people off rather than turn them on, etc., etc. That exercise of introspection, self-analysis, goes round and round in ever-decreasing circles until there's nobody there. So that's not the way to go. The truth is we've been created in God's image and we've been created to become the unique person we were created to be. Self-images are interesting, don't you reckon? Mm. Uh, well, we, all, we all do it. We all do it. Yeah, we create a, an image of ourselves and we happily become dissatisfied with that. Happily do. We, we don't live up to it either. And we're looking for the right feedback. And we'll actually go to places where we'll get the right feedback. We'll avoid places where we get the criticism mm. <laughs> because we've got to bolster that self-image. And the thing is, we haven't invented it really. Mm. It's, it's part of us. But to get the right image, we've got to go on a journey of trust in God to reveal to us our special attractive attributes and non-attractive attributes. He'll show you. He'll say, you're kidding yourself, mate, <laughs> because the Holy Spirit is real. He will show us our special giftings and abilities, our creativity. He'll show us the great things that he's made us to be, as well as the shortcomings. We can know, and in fact, I don't know exactly who, who that is, but I'm not worried about it. I know that God knows, and I know that I'm on the journey, and I know that I've been created with the potential to become who God created me to be. That is enough for me. I'm on the way, and I have the liberty and freedom to hear what he's saying, take it on board, acknowledge it, the shortcomings, and say, oops, thank you, I needed to see that. Thank you, will you help that change, help me be transformed in that so that I can be more like you in your image? That's growth. Mm, it's a process. Right? It's a process, yeah. We can become who God created us to be. We can accept the flawed reflection that we see in our mirror, but trust in the mercy of God in that. Now, the key statement actually in the New Covenant concerning this is, I will have mercy upon your unrighteousness and your sins and iniquities I will remember no more. Because that mirror tells us you are way out of whack, you're out of line, you're guilty, you should be ashamed of that. And so that's our self-image and we just wither away. But God says, no, no, I will go, I'm going to have mercy on your unrighteousness. And you think, wow, you can't just get let off that. How did you do that, God? That's simply God saying, you have set your heart on being aligned with me. Otherwise, you're not 
You wouldn't be asking me. I'm talking about somebody who's asking God. They're looking in God's mirror and he sees that they've got a right heart and he's saying to them, look, you want to be aligned with me, but in your human weakness, you've developed a real wobble (laughs) and you've veered off. But I know how to nudge you back on track with my grace. If you'll stay close and trust me, I will point out to you where you're getting it wrong and I will subdue that independent rebellion in you that says, no, I want to stay this way because I'm going to keep on doing it until you start agreeing with me and acknowledge the truth of who you are. And don't get caught in the lies that you've always believed in. You don't have to anymore. And so God knows how to do this. So we can have faith that God intends for his child to become a true reflection of his heart and mind and goodwill for them. It's a process. You have to start somewhere and stay on the journey. I don't know how perfect a person gets to be, but at least you can arrive at the place where you're saying, I'm trusting God. There is an image there somewhere. There is the image that God has created for us potentially to become in eternity, to become through how he deals with us on the journey. God says, and David says this beautiful psalm about the fact that God saw us, what we we were and who we are meant to be before we even existed in human form. He says in Psalm 139, he said, you saw all my parts before there was yet any of them. So God has got the design. That will do me. It's there waiting for me to walk into. There's another scripture too that tells us how God's word reflects back to us who we truly are. See, we find ourselves in his word. He says, this is who you are. You're my child. You're aligned with me because of my son, Jesus. You trust in him. He's in you. You're in him. He's aligning you with me. Holy Spirit is nudging you along the path. There's the word of God telling us who we are. And there's a scripture that uses the metaphor of a mirror that we look into and grasp the truth of who we are in God's eyes. It says, if you look into the word of God and you grasp the truth of who you are in God's eyes, then don't turn away from the mirror. Go out and look at life and look at what life and other people reflect back to you. Don't do that and then forget what you saw in the mirror. It says it in James, it says, you're like a person who looks into the perfect word of God and sees what kind of a person you are and then you walk away and forget what you saw in the mirror. And he uses the metaphor of a mirror beautifully because it's an unbelievable metaphor in the natural example. I mean, it's quite ridiculous. Can you imagine somebody, yourself, looking in a mirror saying, oh yeah, that's me. And then going out of the kitchen thinking, God, I've forgotten what I look like. Mm. I, I, don't, I can't remember what I saw. That sounds stupid. What's wrong with me? Have I got a facial recognition problem? It's not that difficult to remember, especially of our own face. Mm. But you see, what happens is you disconnect from what the truth is reflecting to you who, of who you are. And you then go out and you get other reflections and your own imagination and you forget who you are. And that word in the Bible just says, if they remember who they are, if they embrace that and live in the perfect law of liberty, they will be blessed in all they do. There's your journey. Mm. In fact, the scripture there's in in James um, chapter 1, It says, it's like a man looking at his natural face in the mirror. And I thought, what's your natural face? And I looked at what what that word was in the Greek. And the word is Genesis. And it only occurs there. 
He looks at his Genesis face. What's my Genesis face? I believe, this is my interpretation, because the word Genesis means the origin. I believe it's what God originally planned for me mm. in eternity. Mm. And I think, wow, I'm looking at it. Let's get on this journey, please. Thank you, Lord. Mm. That's the perfect law of, of liberty, of having the freedom to become. And not get distracted by everything else we see out in the world and when we're in yeah, our jobs exactly. and our workplace or when we're out at a party or where we, you know wherever we are yes. in our circumstances, not to lose sight of that fact. Not to lose sight. That's it. Don't lose sight of what God's doing. I was talking to a young guy fairly recently and he's very smart, he's got a good job and he has to go into planning meetings in, in a company and he's been asked now with the, with the directors to come onto planning meetings. And he said to me, I just don't feel comfortable there because he said, as soon as they start to ask me what my opinion is, he said, I just get so self-conscious and I'm thinking, they're going to think this of me and think, and I said, you're looking in the wrong mirror. Hmm. I said, can you just say to yourself, because you know God and you know he loves you and you know he's designed you to, to be the person you are and you are very competent, you know what you're doing. I said, just say to yourself, Lord, I am going to become God conscious here rather than self conscious. I said, the very act of faith, of declaring that, will create a different environment with, within your soul. And you'll behave differently. And you behave differently. And he started to relax. Mm. He said, Well, God's here. Mm. It's very practical advice. It's, yeah. yeah. It's a lot of people, I think, find themselves in that as a very similar situation where they might feel uncomfortable yeah. or... Say, I'm, I don't feel approved of here. Yeah, I'm not respected here. I'm not valued here. And what's that? That's a reflection of a pretty negative self-image. It's the wrong mirror. Mm-hmm. It's very common. Very common. In fact, we all do it. I mean, I stand up and preach sermons and there are times I stand up and I think, who am I standing here telling all these lovely people what it's all about? And, and I feel... I shouldn't be doing this. And then I, all of a sudden I think, hang on, I'm being self-conscious here. I'm saying, this is your show, Lord. And I then turn, I look at the mirror and I say, Lord, I'm talking about your word. I'm talking about you as a person. And I'm asking you, Holy Spirit, will you take whatever comes out of my mouth, as clumsy as it is, will you please put it back together again in somebody's heart that wants to hear what you're saying? Just do your best and trust the Holy Spirit. There's, a, there's another, another trap. We can be tempted to make a better self-image for ourselves by having, say, a better position in life, a more prestigious job or a status of some kind. So it's kind of ready-made self-image and you, you put that up. This is me with all the letters after my name, right? And so that, be, that can become a substitute for the self-image. And life then becomes an endless pursuit for this kind of self-worth. I've got to find more, I've got to do more name dropping, do more of this, more of that, which comes into the next commandment, by the way. Mm. About a matter of using the name of the Lord in vain. I won't go down that track now. No, but I am going to ask you how they relate. Oh, okay. One and two relate, right. and also to three, but um, after. All, all right, well, okay, well, just supposing somebody does that, and they've got to get their self-worth by the label. People have to know what they're doing. This is my job and look how important it is. And because I do this, that makes me important. No, 
Jesus took the most lowly of tasks. One day, it was at the Last Supper, one night, and he washed the disciples' feet. Now, foot washing has become immortalised as a religious form of ceremony. There are churches, and I'm not knocking it, they do it. Because there's something beautiful about what Jesus did, the foot washing. But it's not because foot washing is of great worth in itself. You might as well have said, he said, can I take your garbage out for you? Right? It wasn't the foot washing. It had great worth because of who did it. You see, we give worth to what we do. It does not add worth to us. If we know who we are in God, what we do has got worth to it. And it's big in God's sight. And it may not be big in people's sight as far as a, a label, but it's, it's good and it's real. Look, the Bible's full of people who try to organise self-images. Saul, who was a very tall man, which was fine. It says he was head and shoulders above everybody else. He was incredibly insecure. He was the king, but he was very insecure. And he did things to make himself liked so that he'd be more secure. And he broke the rules one day. He offered a sacrifice that God had said, don't offer those sacrifices, but he saw the people wanted him to, so he did it. The prophet comes up to him and says, you've just now uh, been demoted. God is going to take the throne away from you for what you did. That is wrong. And he said, uh, okay, I'll accept whatever the God wants me to do, but don't tell the elders what I did. In other words, don't let anybody know because I, I don't want them to see me that way. That is so sad mm. that... He lost it, and yet he was a king. Israel said they were grasshoppers in the sight of the enemies in the promised land. So for that, for saying that, they didn't go in with faith, trusting that God was there. They were self-conscious, not God-conscious, wrong self-image. They had to walk for 40 years in the desert because of that decision. That image of themselves lost it for them. There was a guy called Gideon in the Bible who was challenged to become a deliverer of his people. Uh, this army was coming down from the north uh, to overcome Israel. And he said, oh, how can I do this, Lord? Don't ask me. My clan's the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my father's house. This was his self-perception. And now that was a fact in his circumstances, but it was irrelevant concerning what God thought about him. God said, no, you're a mighty man of valour. So God comes in and rescues so you have Saul, the tall man. There was a little man called Zacchaeus. He was short, it says in the Bible. And Jesus was walking past. And it says Zacchaeus climbed up a tree. I would say that was his idol. I don't mean trees. But psychologically, his way of organising his life was to find a way to elevate himself. Mm. To get up there above everybody else. He was a tax collector. He had everybody's money, so it worked. He got in his tree. Anyway, today he's in his tree and Jesus walks past. The first thing Jesus says to him, come down, Zacchaeus. In other words, I want you as you really are. And Zacchaeus comes down, thinks, what am I in for here? Because he'd done wrong things. And Jesus says, I'm coming into your house today. There's a reflection of love and an approval. And he saw the heart of that man and the design on his life. Mm. And that man's image changed. You know what he did? After Jesus came into his house that day, he walked out of his house and all the people that he'd been robbing through his taxes, he walks out 
And it's, I mean, it doesn't say this in the Bible, but I would say he prefaces it by saying, I love you all, right? <laughs> Something like, I love you people. But he walked out and he said, hey, anybody out here that I owe money to, I'm going to give you four times back. That's transformation. That's the transformation of an image. And it wasn't something Jesus asked him to do. No. It was something he wanted to do. Oh, that's good. Yeah, that's good, Scott. Mm. That came from his heart. He was given the right feedback by God. He looked in the right mirror. Okay, well, I, I do want to ask you, get back to that question about how the commandments relate to one another. Oh, yeah, right. Well, this is a theme running through all the commandments, that there is a progression through the commandments. They are linked together. They're not a laundry list of commandments. So on commandment two, how does commandment two relate to commandment one and commandment three? Okay, well, commandment two relates to commandment one because it's almost using the same wording. It's commandment one. Commandment one says, I am the Lord your God, don't have any other gods before me. And if people accepted that, there wouldn't be a need for commandment two. Because commandment two says, don't go making an image of any other thing and call it as your God, don't do that. So that's related. In other words, God sees the fallibility of human nature, the the flaw in us is, look, I've told them the truth, the reality, it's me, but they're going to have to believe it and not see it. I mean, they can ask for miracles, yeah, but that's not going to convince them, didn't convince Israel. They're going to have to trust in me and I will reveal myself to them and something will happen on the, on the inside. They'll develop in my image to become like me. Then God knows that if, if we don't accept that, uh, our default position will be I'll make something for myself. So that's how that's related. Mm. When we do make something for ourselves, it becomes our self-image or our group image. Like with Israel, they went back to their, their old one in Egypt. This is the God that brought us out. Now, that's what, that's what happened. When they made the golden calf, they had broken commandment number one. I mean, they hadn't even received the commandments. They'd broken commandment number one. They're now breaking commandment number two by creating a golden calf. Then they break commandment number three in the same time by saying, this is the God that brought us out of Egypt. In other words, they called the golden calf, they labelled it God, they got their product, put God's label on it, and that was the third commandment being broken, which is do not use the name of the Lord in vain. And then Moses broke all 10 commandments. He did. Mm. He smashed, smashed the all. lot. He smashed the lot. Had to go back and get another set. He had to go and get an entirely new set of commandments, mm. which was quite prophetic. Yeah. Well, we talked about that, I think. Uh, yeah, we did. In yeah. Episode. Look, the, this commandment ends with something, a very interesting statement. It says, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. What does that mean, that God is jealous? Okay, well, that can seem like a very negative, petty emotion, Jealousy, you can think, well, what's God feel is missing out on here? God's jealousy is an aggressive expression of his love. Jealousy is quite a, a wonderful, powerful, loving virtue. In fact, what God is saying when he says, I'm a jealous God is, I am number one in your life and I know it. And it's not that he gets a swelled head about it, it's just the reality. I am number one. I'm the Lord your God. I'm the source of your being, your, your development, your future, the design of who you are. And I am the meaning of your life and the purpose for your life. That's me. And that will work for you. And then he sees, but I know that you're going to go off and make something else. 
Now, jealousy says, whatever you make for yourself is not going to be as good as me. So I'm jealous because you're going to get second best. He wants us to accept his process of making us in his image. Remember the Bible characters that I mentioned, Saul and Zacchaeus and Gideon, etc. There was another one, David. Now, David got it wrong. And he built himself images. He went out to war thinking that he had it all in control and he disobeyed God. God said, oh, you didn't ask me if you were to go out to battle for these people. I didn't want you to, but you did. And you, th you were setting yourself up as the king. So God dealt with David in that. But David learnt the lesson. He realised that he couldn't get away with making his own image of who he was. The Bible says that he had a heart after God. He ended up with all of his faults, all of his flaws. He ended up saying, this was his description of himself. He said, I am the apple of God's eye. Now, in other words, he knew how close he was. And he knew that God wanted him to see himself as God saw him, and he accepted, he accepted the overture of that love and says, well, I'm going to live in that. John the Apostle at the Last Supper, when Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me, all the disciples felt guilty. Their self-image was, oh, I wonder if it's me. This sort of shame thing crept up. And they started putting their head in his face and saying, is it our Lord? Is it our Lord? John the Apostle didn't do that. He just said to Jesus, who is it? He knew it wasn't him. You see, you can have a self-image that flows in with the right mirror of what God's reflecting back to you. I think that probably about covers that. Yep. Yeah. Well, I also think people confuse jealousy with envy. And, and, sure. and I think uh, people see jealousy as a negative emotion or attitude, whereas actually it's envy that's the negative attitude. That's a so, good point. So if I, if I want to, so if somebody uh, runs off with my wife, I become jealous because she's my wife. But if I want to run off with somebody else's wife, that's being envious. You'd have a right to feel jealous, right, in the first place. And if you could package that with the right kind of motive. And I would say that if you worked it out and analysed, if a thing like that had happened, you would say, yeah, I'm the right one here. That person's not yeah, the one you want. In that situation, yeah. it's, that right to, it's a right emotion it's right to feel emotion. jealous. Yeah, but the envy one, you're spot on there because if you're wanting or coveting, and that's another commandment, we'll get to that one day, if you're coveting somebody else's wife, that's, not, that's what people think jealousy is, but it's not. That's you're, right, it's envy. So you're correct. It gets mixed up with envy, mm. and that's good that you make that distinction because mm. they're two different things. Oh, yeah. If you see them in their pure form. All right, Paul. Well, look, thanks for that. Um, I look forward to discussing commandment number three with you next week. Look forward to it, Scott. Thank you.